0: This is the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. All
1: right, welcome back to another Owens Recovery Science Podcast. This is Johnny Owens with Kyle Kimbrell. Wrapping up the end of the year, man. I'm trying to find a Christmas gift for you, Kyle. You're, you're just so hard, so hard to buy for, dude. I, you know. Yeah,
0: I know. It's all right.
1: I, uh, I just bought I the I the day, you some Rogaine so. and just see if that might. might no, we're something. way past the
0: Rogaine stage, buddy. Oh, we're I, past I, it. Okay. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. We're, we're full on. You know, Telly Savalas, Mister Clean, over here. There's, there's no need to, no need to intervene on the top of my face. At least. Well, maybe the will be here of
1: that, soon for the Orange Recovery Science annual Christmas party. So I'll just have a bunch of booze for you. More than anything. Okay, else. that works. I was wondering awesome. what you are doing. Yeah, drinking, 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 drinking. Perfect. Throw a little bit of food in there. Yeah. Well, dude, this is going to be a badass podcast today uh, because I'm a excited. very, very good paper just came out from these folks. Uh, they're repeat offenders, have been on this podcast before, um, mm-hmm. and we, we discussed some safety issues. Um, things that they were looking at. And, and what, what they are doing is this is a landmark paper because this is a blood flow restriction clinical paper um, looking at its application in adolescents. And so I have Adam Weaver and I have Dylan Roman, both from Connecticut Children's. Um, just quick bios, Adam and, and Dylan, they're both physical therapists. They do clinical care. Um, Adam runs the um, the orthopedic research um whatever arm up there at, at Connecticut Children's um, and, and so churning out churning out some good stuff and so it's cool that they're not only just in the research side but also in the clinical side and so I think their knowledge of seeing a, a gap that was needed um, helped bring them to looking at the application of blood flow restriction and post-op ACL adolescents. so without further ado welcome guys I um, want to dive into this paper. Thanks for having us, Johnny. Happy to be here. Thanks, Johnny. Thanks, Kyle. Yeah, man. So um, just to recap, you know, you you guys put out an initial paper um, early on because no one had looked at blood flow restriction in a clinical adolescent population. And so the first thing you guys did, which I love, is you kind of looked at the safety piece. And so can you all recap a little bit um, for folks that might not have seen that or heard the podcast of, of what that paper was?
2: Yeah, so we um, we published that paper in 2022, and um, uh, we basically just took um, all of the the treatment sessions that were part of our our clinical trial, um, and we just did some some frequency work. So there were about 500 patient sessions, um, and as part of our each of our visits with our our patients in the trial, we just recorded basically anything that was defined in prior literature as an adverse event. Um, and so we, that's open for interpretation, but the, uh, the premise of it really was to sort of look at DVT, nerve injury, which has been reported before. Um, and then we sort of, we defined minor adverse events, which basically was, could they tolerate it? Um, meaning, did they have to stop? Um, and any other sort of adverse events um, that, that, that they had. And so the long and short of it was they tolerated it pretty well. Um, and about 80 to 90% of those patients, um, you know, more or less finished all the, all of the, uh, sessions and, and reps in sort of in your normal treatment session. Um, and then we had a small subset of patients that had some dizziness, um, itching, um, which was more sort of a a histamine response. Um, Mm -hmm. and we had a couple of patients that sort of repeated, uh, some, some fainting, um, with that. So, um, was, you know, received pretty well. So, um we were happy to get that out true so a true like syncope
1: fainting event or almost like just feeling lightheaded and, and they felt like they were going to faint
2: more more just a lightheaded uh fainting yeah. you know kind of like your patients that had not eaten um and sort of had yeah. to stop um, yeah. from there particularly on the on the harder exercises but um that was pretty rare um i think some of it we probably learned as we went just sort of our, our dosing of of how much you know weight to be using um you know so we probably helped with that we were going too hard out of the gates probably yeah <laughs> i feel like that's been pretty consistent in my practice too where i've
0: if someone has that kind of uh, an episode i almost always feel like they're dehydrated or they haven't eaten like they didn't come prepared to exercise intensely so could certainly be a dosing piece in there too. I would think, though. So it's a good point.
3: Yeah, nothing, nothing abnormal compared to like our normal exercise prescription and the, the side effects you see. Uh, the The comment I'll make on it as we continued through this trial and we saw more and more exposures, mm-hmm. still no uh, significant adverse events or any of the big scary yeah. red flags. So it was overall, you know, uh, that paper was great to get out there, and then we we saw the same trend going forward that it was tolerated really well, and then overall really safe for these these adolescent patients. Nice. Yeah.
1: So getting into now, can you guys you put that one out? Great, you know that that was that was fantastic to see, and now move into this actual clinical trial. You guys want to describe your study design and, and your thoughts on on moving forward with this?
3: Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah so this um, obviously uh, Adam's kind of brainchild here is the uh, PI on the project and uh, set it up really well for us. Our first clinical trial here, um, and again, uh, shout out to you guys after you kind of came in and uh, trained our staff um, on our blood flow restriction training, we, we realized there's just such a big gap for this age group. Um, we kept asking you these questions. Uh, Zach came and kind of educated us and we kept saying, oh, well, what about in kids, you know, what about in young adults? And he said, well, I just, I don't know yet, you know, why don't you guys do something about it? Uh, so that's, that's really kind of where, where it started. Yeah, but it was, it was good. We, um, kind of spanned over COVID. So we originally had a prospective arm and a, um, for an intervention group and a control group. Um, The paper is, you know, our intervention group. We ended up comparing to a retrospective control group just because uh, we kind of lost a good amount of follow up for our control group um, throughout the kind of COVID pandemic. You know, started uh, 2019 right before uh, the world kind of crashed down. So so that's why we we had our prospective intervention group and then uh, a retrospective control group, which is kind of from our database. Um, But the the nuts and bolts of it, we. We had um, a 12-week intervention of BFR, and it was twice a week, uh, and you had three exercises throughout the routine physical therapy session. Um, And in the paper, we kind of laid out the exercise in in a pretty stepwise progression, how we would normally treat it in the clinic, Um, progressing load appropriately, um, patient dependent on their response and their perceived exertion. Um, And then we tested some outcomes. Uh, We tested outcomes. At their 12-week visit. Um, We were looking at knee strength uh, and we were looking at um, functional outcomes based on the PDI-KDC score. Um, And then we again tested kind of longer-term outcomes at their like return-to-play tests, um, kind of between that like seven and nine-month mark. Uh, And then we did similar uh, isometric and isokinetic knee strength. And again, like the PDI-KDC scores. So it was good we had, you know, a the first clinical trial also the early short-term kind of uh outcomes as well as the longer-term outcomes to compare yeah, that's fantastic and i guess get into the
1: the nitty-gritty of this you guys um you know it's always difficult estimating you know a one rm after you know surgery and, and so you guys did use the omni-res um do you describe that um, that's something we teach but i'm not sure if everyone's really understands what that is or how you would apply it in these populations
3: yeah. So uh, obviously the goal was, you know, starting somewhere between 20 and 30% of their one RM as a base weight. And some of these exercises, especially if you look at when we started BFR for these patients, it was really early post-op. Uh, so, you know, uh, about within the first week, about a week uh, post-op for these patients. Yeah. So we didn't hit uh, maybe their, their exact prescription uh, always, especially early on, especially when you're starting with like a quad set or a sideline hip abduction. Uh, but as we kind of progress through the program and you're starting to do some of the you know long arc quads or split squats or single leg, you know, shuttle leg press, uh, we're definitely getting this omni-res, basically a, a kind of a, a variant of the, you know, zero through 10 RPE scale and using that to kind of calculate uh, if we should progress weight or kind of stay the same. Yeah, you, you asked them basically to shoot for a, like a two
1: or three, right, on that RPE scale, and that's the, their target load.
3: Uh, yeah, so especially kind of scaling it before and then also after the exercise, seeing what their what their end up end RPE kind of came and we use that to kind of leave a note for the next session if we were starting at the same weight or, you know, starting a little higher. Right, right.
1: And your LOP started at 80 and then you did it the way I like it. Start high and then go down. I don't like to start low and then go up because then they're like, yeah, I like the low. So basically that was it, right? Started at 80 and if they couldn't take it, take it down and call them a wuss.
3: Yeah, we didn't, we didn't uh, cut any corners, even if they're younger patients. So, you know, we went as low as 12 years old for some of our patients. Uh, Yeah, yeah, we, we pumped it up uh, 80% LOP from the start. Obviously, if people were complaining of, you know, extreme discomfort, uh, that's when we were able to kind of stepwise progression, drop it down um, as long as we didn't go below 60. But uh, shockingly, a lot of people um, were totally fine with, with 80 when we, you know, applied the cuff appropriately proximal as, as high as possible. We used the, you know, contour sleeve underneath. Um, so overall uh, most pe- people stayed right at 80 for that.
1: Yeah. yeah. And and three exercises per session. So that's a, that's a pretty good, a little
2: amount of work on these kiddos. And yeah, we, I was going to say Johnny we chose 80 initially somewhat out of, um, you know, kind of like, Oh, that's what we were taught. And, uh, so when we did start, I think some of the initial, when we look at some of our, our our tolerance data earlier on was they were not tolerating as much um, and I think that's probably a piece of it too is that we weren't we weren't reading the patient well enough to know if they could tolerate 80. Um, but I would say yeah. by and large and even clinically now um, I would say the majority of our patients we were, we don't really have to adjust the occlusion very much um, except for the ones that sort of learn how to use the device you know as we get as they get, Going on, especially with more of our, some of our older college athletes, I've found that they once they get they once they know they can adjust the occlusion, we'll come back and the occlusion adjusted down. <laughs> <laughs> but for the purpose yeah. of this trial, we 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 found that most of them uh, we did not have to adjust very much.
1: I had a guy one time that would try and unplug it when I was gone, and then come back over and he didn't realize like an alarm would start going off. You We're know, gonna losers. They try anything. <laughs> you know, like so- a, a button button
0: you could you push down but it's a dummy button that says it goes down but it doesn't actually go down yeah just see if that matters really
1: yeah and so the youngest was 12 right and they tolerated this that's that's awesome i don't know how you've done you could you can get a 12 year old to do it like my daughters are like 14 and 16 and they can't even do bfr they're such they're so weak
3: i would say definitely patient dependent but um we were we reported on kind of the the sport activity level uh, between our groups too. A lot of these were you know athletes, whether it's you know middle school, high school. Um, so we we were definitely you know lucky to deal with very motivated people to get back after this uh, ACL injury. So I'm sure age yeah. isn't um, going to be the same across every you know diagnosis or patient population, but but most of the, most of these kids are super motivated.
1: And these were all quad tendon um, repairs, right? No hamstring. <laughs> And, and no con- concomitant lesions or meniscus repairs or anything like that. Just a straight up ACL. If yeah. Lord yep, help correct. you that y'all actually could find just, just a isolated ACL tears. That probably really crushed enrollment as well.
2: Um, especially yeah, we, in this population. We had a, about half of the patients had, had a meniscus repair. Um, and But the majority of them were... were did not um, have any anything, and then we made sure that they were primary, you know, sort of first time, no revisions, contralaterals. Yeah, you know, and we picked twelve mostly just because um, that's really the beginning stage of adolescence, um, and so that'll kind of be some other questions we'll look to in the future. Sort of stratifying by age a little bit more, just because we know sometimes the exercise response in, in younger ages is, is you know, pre-puberty. Or as they're hitting puberty, it can sometimes be a little bit different um, than sort yeah. of your 17, 18 year eighteen-year-old, um, you know, older athlete. Have you guys done it clinically on puberty Uh, The twelve is probably the youngest for me. I don't know about Dylan. Um, I would say most of our staff probably goes around twelve. Um, you know, and I think sometimes it's it's more more of a tolerance thing. It's hard to it's hard to get a nine or ten-year-old yeah. to understand you know, they're right in their left foot, much less, you know, we're going to put this thing on your leg and yeah. you need to just figure it out. So we've done, a, I, I would say probably some of our staff has, I haven't done much I'm younger than 12.
3: Yeah. I've de- i definitely tried it on, you know, 10 and 11 year olds as well, but there's just such a, a spectrum in maturity levels and readiness at, at that age. Um, yeah. But, you know, we, we get referrals sometimes, you know, kids after, you know, a forearm fracture or uh, like a tibial fracture and they're in a cast in, even those patients where, you know, there's not a lot of other things we can do and we, we mm-hmm. still kind of think BFR is something really appropriate at that standpoint. So if, if that's kind of the main treatment goal right there, I have no problem kind of even starting the LOP a little lower and giving it a go.
1: Sweet, sweet, sweet. So going into your outcomes and then getting back onto the study here. So um, you look at knee extension inflection torque. Um, isometrically and isokinetically at three months and then at the return to sport. So again, that that intermediate term and then more of a long-term, their uh, limb symmetry index, uh, the PDI, IKDC. Um, yeah, and, that, and that's basically it. So can you guys get into the details of what you guys found?
3: Yeah, sure, I can talk through that. Uh, we, uh, If you compare kind of the raw data that we reported in the paper, obviously the BFR group um, was significantly stronger Uh, both at the three-month mark and at the return to sport mark. Uh, So we recorded it in peak torque. Obviously, how much peak torque you can isometrically kind of kick out. And we also looked at symmetry. So the interesting part, uh, the kids with their involved leg, um, the BFR group was stronger uh, compared to the control group. But we didn't see a a really big difference in symmetry just because the BFR group, they got on their involved leg and their contralateral leg. We saw um, strength increases on both sides. So you look yeah. at our symmetry index; it's really not nothing too substantial there. Um, and obviously, we're not not upset that their contralateral leg, limb got uh, stronger yeah. as well. So, so that was kind of an interesting finding there that we saw, kind of both both at the three month and return to sport time point.
1: Yeah, that's fantastic, and that's something that gets ignored lots of times with rehab. Is you know you're you're not looking at doing anything on a contralateral leg, and and it is actually significantly weaker or you're comparing the LSI to a weak contralateral leg as well and thinking that you're, you're within the, the kind of like safe range. So that was, that was pretty cool. You guys did a great job in the paper describing that.
3: Great. Yeah. Some bigger, bigger takeaways, just looking at like the absolute um, peak torque, you know, even early on at three months, it was uh, like 1.8 Newton meters per kilogram in the BFR group versus 1.44 Newton meters per kilogram. Uh, So if you have, you know, 0.4, 0.4, uh, newton meters per kilogram increase at that time point, like that's clinically a, a really big increase for, uh, for what we normally see around here. Yeah. So you know, it makes sense, uh, that, you know, these kids ended up reporting a better function as well, because that's uh, definitely a, a higher increase than we were expecting.
1: And then on your, um, your self-reported, your IKDC, that was improved as well.
3: Yeah. Yep. So that was improved at three months and return to sport. Um, and then with our mixed methods, ANOVA, uh, what we saw, that was kind of, it got obviously better um, from three months to return to sport. That was the same for all of our outcomes. Um, it was higher in the BFR group, uh, kind of at both time points. Um then it got better faster in the BFR time point, uh, in the BFR nice. group as well. So, yeah, definitely um, that was one of our main outcomes because our surgeons like to see um, what the IKDC score is and insurance companies do as well. So, you know, that yeah. kind of cl- closed the loop there.
1: Surgeons care about that. I didn't think they gave a rat's ass about anything, but <laughs> the bone and how does the muscle look and cool. You're cleared to play. Did y'all track return to sport time frames at all? I mean, I know it wasn't published, but was there any trend you guys saw in this or that you're seeing clinically, and, and maybe not, maybe actually going back to sport, but meeting the return to sport criteria? The, the Methodist guys in their ACL paper, not in adolescence, you know, they, they got about a six week kind of improve return to sport time.
3: Yeah, that wasn't one thing that we actually tracked, uh, especially with our kind of standard practice here at Connecticut Children's. Um, Everyone's waiting until nine months for these uh, kids regardless. So they have kind of a a nine month follow up where, you know, the majority of ones that don't um, undergo complications are usually getting uh, some sort of sport clearance at that, at that time point. So that wasn't something we tracked um, for now.
1: Yeah. Good. Well, you hate to hear like, yeah, well, uh, they met criteria and we l- sent them back to sport at six months because as of now, unless something changes, let's let's please not do that. So Fantastic. Um, how about surgeon buy-in? Did you guys have any issues? I mean, I know you guys have been doing it here, but it, most of the surgeons, as well as like parent buy-in, any pearls you guys would
2: give people treating adolescents? I would say it seems to be... Um i would say our surgeons have always been pretty supportive supportive of any of our 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 ideas um i think you know we what i think we've said this in the past too and just there's pretty good literature you know to support the use of this at this point the skeptics usually are on sort of how does this impact an open growth plate um you know how does this impact healing and and you know i think we're going mostly on somewhat on conjecture and sort of theory at this point and we you know probably don't fully fully know um but it seems to be as as we've gone on and sort of the, our other institutions that are children's hospitals they're all pretty much on board at this point with you know especially in this population um, um using it and so and parents uh, I, we were surprised initially we thought you know we might have a little bit more um, i wouldn't even say pushback but um, we really got, you know, we just explained what we were doing and they're like, okay. And then they were kind of back onto, you know, and the, and the kids were usually okay with it too. Um, so generally it seems to be okay. Um, and I think people, you know, we, this second trial around, we've actually had a few that we've had to exclude because we've had parents that said, yeah, my other kid had a surgery or I had a surgery and I want, I want to make sure my kid has uh, has has bfr as part yeah. of the of rehab so um which has yeah. been a challenge we didn't we didn't expect to we didn't think we would would run into so yeah we tried to do a chronic weakness um trial
1: with post op acls you know that, kind of like the noyes study and we could not get our controls to to stick to the control group so uh yeah that that one went nowhere with us as well so that was then, the
0: wasn't that the issue too with the the Pac-12 ACL trial. Yeah. Couldn't yeah. get couldn't get the some of the schools to agree to have their football players included in the potential control.
1: Yeah. Really, or or, or the ACL I'll trial. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Single arm study. Yeah. Um and, and I I think one you guys pointed it out as well. You did everything like so perfect because it's super standardizable. Like this is LOP is a 60 to 80 percent range you know you you're basically trying to target that 20 to 30 percent rm through an rp scale which is pretty much all you can do in these post-op populations and then your protocol um i, I love the way you did your acl protocol for one you included a long arc quad um which is fantastic and we don't, we don't have to get into that debate here but it's something that these acl patients really need and and you kept that long arc quad going you know so you, you guys did this in blocks you know a couple week blocks it looks like on the protocol but you did keep that long arc quad going and, and so Several of those blocks there just to focus on quad strength so very very easy for people to apply and progressed yeah. into multi-joints you know into closed chain and the fatal flaw that some studies have been published have done you increase load <laughs> i mean there, these yeah. studies where it's like we did 12 weeks and never changed the load
2: like really it's crazy you didn't get results yeah we we tried to we tried to take everything into account and even with what we did, I think we still, uh, sort of learned some of the the challenges. Um, one of my takeaways was more that maybe just to really, from a research standpoint, simplifying our exercises even further, just to further bias quad strength, um, maybe more beneficial and that's kind of how we're moving in the, you know, sort of, we've moved forward, um, you know, because we did see changes in hamstring strength as well, but, um, if we're, if we really want to impact the quad and we know that it's such a problem in these patients, um, you know, we, that's kind of how my practice has changed clinically is that I'm targeting it more, even more specifically with, with BFR is rather than trying to get, um, you know, cute with lots of different exercises, yeah. really just picking two or three, the you know, best bang for your buck and being done and then moving on to yeah. other stuff.
1: Yeah, I agree. You know, people like I give up on it.
0: inside right now yeah yeah this is you're speaking <laughs> oh, kind our of, language oh, kind of yeah. happy happy feelings inside right now adam thank <laughs> you so much for saying all of that
2: <laughs> happy, happy holidays happy holidays
1: yeah. <laughs> well like there's no reason you to you know you you can't do longer quads for six to eight weeks or or even longer and it's almost like well we did it for two weeks let's quit and it, you you would never like go to the gym and be like i'm gonna do bicep curls for two weeks and i'm stopping and i'm gonna do whatever some some crazy little party
2: trick bicep thing yeah, yeah i well, mean we i was just going to say when we we've also sort of seen that we've you know when we started <laughs> when we started this trial we you know we had pretty good experience with quad 10 and acls but the more that we have treated them and i think the more that we see published is they do um sort of progress from a strength standpoint a little bit differently um and, it, and i think some of that has to do with the graph prep on it as well as um, you know, it being taken from the rectus femoris. So the changes in, in quad strength um, and sort of how they progress initially um, seems to be a little bit different, just anecdotally what we're seeing. So um, I think for for us and for myself, it's made it even more imperative that, you know, really sort of providing consistent stimulants to the quad in multiple positions in a simple mm-hmm. way. Um, and even then, it still seems like that may not be enough um, in the short term, and we need you know we need to to do it longer You know, we need to be sti- you know providing a stimulus a specific stimulus in an open chain position in a much for a much longer period of time
0: yeah you guys have you guys tried um like in varied degrees of like hip extension have you been playing around with that on
2: your end yeah i mean not so much with bfr but certainly in in you know just as we progress um you know whether it's yeah. sort of leaning back in a semi-reclined or semi-reclined position or even yeah. you know sup- supine um you know we've been trying to uh to at least i have been you know experiment with that quite a bit yeah
1: yeah Kyle's all onto that and he clued me into it and now i, I can't find anywhere i can freaking do it like lay down because I've got a leg extension machine. I'm all like hunched over the back of it, trying to yeah. get as much hip extension as I can. So,
3: yeah, I would say strength wise, and then even there, you know, later on, uh, depending on how we're loading it, we're seeing some of the kind of quad tendon, tendinopathy, tendinitis, and doing some isometrics mm-hmm. and you know, as much hip extension. We saw that's probably been one of our one of our biggest interventions to clear that up a little bit. Yeah. But, yeah. One thing jumping back to where Adam said, I think this this trial definitely changed kind of our practice moving forward, where you know. The, the results, we saw, you know, pretty great hamstring strength in these groups. And then uh, we even presented last year at CSM. Uh, we also collected hip extension isometric strength uh, at three months. And there was just no difference. Uh, everyone was kind of hitting the criteria pretty good. So we kind of looked at our exercise program where, you know, we're, we're given – a lot of open chain hip we're given some like double leg bridge exercises so like yeah maybe it's not surprising these quad tendons you know have no deficits there but we're really still struggling on quads even though they're better than c- control group so i think clinically we've we've definitely shifted more towards let's be specific and intentional with our open chain quad and and our STEM application with bfr so yeah i think it's it's been good to change our practice
0: and humble enough to look at this stuff and go maybe there's some things we could change you know like i think that's the the freaking downfall of so many clinicians is just a lack of freaking humility to look in the damn mirror and go, maybe I'm not the best effing PT out there. You know, you know, maybe I could improve a little bit. So, so kudos to y'all. I just love hearing that when people have like looked back at their practice and gone, okay, well that didn't work, you know, kind of got to try something else. So I love it, man.
3: you
1: I'm all having so I never had to go through that,
0: Kyle. It's weird.
1: Okay, all
3: right. Here we go. <laughs> I was gonna say I'm I'm trying to humble uh, Adam as often as I can. So <laughs> <laughs> I I remember
0: I actually always tell his story about how the exercise fist propeller heads came through the CFI Johnny. Like you tell, oh, yeah. you used to tell that story how you know they came through and they're like, hey, what's that? what's that guy doing on the table where he's, like, raising his leg up? What is What is that? Johnny's like, oh, he's at an ACL. He's getting his quad stronger. And the exercise fizz propeller head's like, yeah, no. It's, like, yeah. very matter-of-fact. Yeah, hey, hey.
1: That's Oh, like so he's doing motion. range of motion, I think, is what yeah. he said. Yeah. So like, I don't know. He's got a three-pound weight, dude.
0: Like, imagine the, ex- the exercise phys, like, professors are there to watch rehab exercise. Yeah, it's embarrassing. I'd be nervous I mean, even knowing what I know now. Everything, yeah. yeah.
1: So, I mean, obviously, this was like pretty much everything you wanted to see change, changed positively. So, it, uh, has this helped with buy-in? Where this is basically Connecticut Children's is saying this, this is going to be part of our protocol now that you will do BFR after ACL.
2: Yeah, we don't really give them much of a choice unless they refuse, I guess, at this point. I mean, they always have a choice, but we sort of introduce, yeah. we. You know, it's kind of, and I think we've gotten some buy-in from some of our other clinicians that were a little bit more skeptical um, or hesitant, um, you know, and so I think we generally will present it um, with most of our, our lower extremity, you know, knee patients, uh, um, and unless they really just cannot handle it or tolerate it. it's going to be a piece of the of the puzzle and i think where we're at now is trying to really determine you know clinically but you know i would like to move forward this way in the future but of what's the optimal you know when is enough enough and and how do we determine with that because no matter how many ways we sort of look into quad strength at least if um at these different time points there's still an issue for the vast majority of these patients there's still a quad deficit of some some Mm -hmm. capacity um, and so, kind of like we said before, the more that we know, the more questions we have, like, why is it consistent? Why do we consistently see these 20 and 30% deficits? And there's things that are out of our control, but also, yeah. you know, this is... Um, so we, we're continually trying to figure out, you know, ways to, so, to to band-aid that or sort of bring it back up to par. Um, and so... And there,
0: there may be things that are out of your control, you know. like I, 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 In talking with Eric Meta a lot, you know, he's always really kind of on the side of I think that joint is just kind of unhappy for a while and you get to that four month point and, and things level off and he goes and he really thinks it's just the joint kind of still settling down and I kind of go well isn't I mean it seems like PFR would be kind of a nice intervention if you still have sort of a joint problem in that in that phase yeah too but I mean I just love yeah like let's see what we can do to to figure that out um one of my kind of curiosities on you guys is are you using neuromuscular stim with bfr at all in your in your acl rehab is that something yeah, that's what dylan said with? i think uh,
3: yeah I so don't we don't Sorry, dylan. yeah not necessarily standardizing i think our clinic i mean we've just definitely been pushing stim more and more you know the more we learn about it the more we see like so some quad deficits persist uh but yeah, yeah clinically i i put stim on uh, i will gladly put, you know, stim and ramp it up and, you know, put a BFR on top of it um, if we're kind of early on just doing quad sets or doing long arcs. Um, but yeah, more so just kind of in that one joint, uh, not so much with like big functional movements or anything like that, yeah. just trying yeah.
2: super concise and isolated. But yeah, we stim as much as we can. Yeah, we, we tried to, um, we put that initially in the protocol in the first two weeks of, for this study, for this, you know, this paper. And the some of the challenges were just one is time. Um, and two you know we sort of found like once they were moving and feeling a little bit better we were just getting them doing quad sets and then we'd have them do stem at the end but I would say for all of us from a stem standpoint everybody is most of our clinicians and and I can only speak for myself but I'm moving towards doing stem upwards of eight to twelve weeks now um, and sometimes longer and making sure trying to get as many patients as we can to get a home unit, um, just because it's not enough. Um, yeah. and the more that we sort of learn about just sort of, you know, what quadriceps inhibition, um, to me, that's just, it's the one thing we can control, um, you know, as far as an intervention. And so we try to do that and then do it in different ways, you know, as we, as we progress uh, from there. It's
1: in our DOD protocol, our ACL protocol. So the first four weeks, it's just, you have to do it. Because our, our research coordinators are like, why are we still doing STEM? It's like week three, <laughs> just keep doing it and and turn it up higher, please.
2: Yeah. I mean, we, we, so now the way we ended up doing it is we, uh, early on, we may do some of our BFR stuff, you know, or, or any of our sort of manual therapy stuff and sort of, basic function stuff and then they finish with that and then as we get going that is always we just finish with it and they'll be doing isometrics off the edge of the table yep. um with stim and that's Perfect. just how because it doesn't take it just takes setup and we don't um, right. and then they and then once they te- we test them at three and if they're getting close to that if we they're close to that 70 80 lsi range at three which rarely happens it seems like then, yeah. we'll, then we think about dialing back on it it just made lynn snyder mackler happy
1: yeah
0: yeah that's what we're after
1: yeah yeah
2: <laughs> we're all after that
0: the <laughs> world is better with smack happy <laughs> uh, yeah I, that's our, how we would do it all the time is we would just do it like right at the end of a session you know and because you set the stem up to run we'd set the bfr to just inflate deflate five on one off a lot of times and you know there's somebody around to kind of jump in and adjust something for the patient if they needed it but yeah just stick them off the table and tie them off to the table leg and go you guys feel like you're seeing um uh,
1: the analgesic benefits in the kids at all or is that
2: yeah good question. you know that's a good question i think um we haven't really sort of measured it in any way um we we some of us have experimented a little bit with some of our you know apophysitis or you know particularly like the osgood's or um, yeah even even the severs to some degree um or these non-responsive you know patellar tendon type pathologies and we do see it has been sort of helpful and that but we haven't really at least i have not seen it done it consistently enough to really see a measurable change other than in session you're like they'll come back and say like, yeah it did feel better for for a couple of days but I think that would be a really interesting area to, to sort of investigate just to see how measurable the change is, because we know there's a big change to them. So.
1: Yeah. Well, especially that population, all that anterior knee stuff is, is, can be just such a nightmare with them that if you're getting quad and analgesia, that's, that's kind of huge for them. Yep. What about other plans? You guys, you know, you put the first PEED study out there. Are you, are you guys going to be looking at, at more trials?
2: Yeah. So we, we, um, we started, I, a follow-up trial to this Um, we just started enrolling um, a few months ago Um, so we're in the early stages of that and basically we took what we learned from that first study and and tried to to make it make it a better protocol Um, so we simplified some of our exercises like I mentioned Um, we made the time of of uh, the protocol four weeks shorter so we did eight weeks instead of 12 um, mostly because we were finding that just by eight weeks, these kids, we want to get these kids moving and, you know, doing more strength and conditioning mm-hmm. exercises. Um, and then we're going to measure strength at a, at an earlier time point, just to see if the pre-op, pre-op to, to the eight week change is, um, is really what I'm kind of interested in looking at and seeing, cause we know we're going to see a, a, an atrophy there. Uh, but maybe this is a way to measure it, it really, uh, mitigates that, that loss, um, uh, uh, and then we'll still follow them out for, um, a year to two years. Um, so we're hopefully, and we're also randomized this. So we have a randomized, um, the control group is going to be in-house with us, um, and they're going to do the same exercises just with no cuff. Um, so we couldn't really blind it. Um, yeah. but that's, so we we really try to take the next step. Um, but we're running into the, all the challenges that come with running a clinical trial and, uh, recruitment and enrollment, um, in the absence of funding. So if anyone out there yeah. wants to fund us, you know, uh, call me directly. I like it. E- Even like with it. funding, it sucks, man. It's still, ch- it's still we're, a challenge. We like,
1: we like pay these people and they don't come. Um, yeah. So well, and and retail would be very interesting if you're looking at these far enough out, because that is such a huge problem in adolescence. Yeah. We've,
2: yeah. We haven't um, we we've, you know, obviously we, we do try to track that with all of our patients. Um, and we, we had a, a, a decent amount, you know, sort of in that 20 to 30% range of our, of this, of our intervention group had a re-injury. Um, we just don't know how to, how do we measure that, that being related to BFR itself. And, and, yeah. you know, you know, and so, so on one hand, it's like, we know that 30% of those patients retore. So we had the, the number was consistent with our intervention group. Um, but then in the back of your head, you always kind of wonder, all right, would this have been different or or not different in the presence yeah. of or, or absence? So I just don't know how it's another sort of question in the back of our minds of how do we how do we measure that um, to sort of see that direct relationship? And again, there's so many factors to that, to re-injury that it's hard to hard to put our finger on one thing with that. Very cool, man.
3: Yeah, I, is, I wonder. Go ahead, Dylan. I was going to add in uh I the new trial that we're doing, obviously, to kind of refine our protocol and see, you know, what are the best interventions to to give at an earlier time point as well um, of strength measurement. But also looking at like the tolerance aspect to it and, you know, what in this younger population, what exercises or what limb occlusion pressure is maybe best for some kids. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- that's just something that we've, you know, originally just started kind of. Collaborating uh, a couple other children's hospitals, Um, Nicholas Children's Hospital of Atlanta, um, Mm -hmm. ourselves at Connecticut Children's um, and then Texas Children's. We're kind of just brainstorming uh, how we're all tracking that the same way, just so we can kind of eventually make sure we're on the same page with, you know, what we're recording, uh, making sure, you know, we're all kind of checking the same boxes. So hopefully we can look at that, you know, in the near future and uh, give some some quality recommendations on what these kids like best.
1: Dude, that's badass. I didn't know y'all were yeah. doing that with those guys. Yeah, that'd
3: be cool. Eh, early, early stages, but you know, talk to us next year. Yeah. yeah. Well,
1: y'all are all playing nice. That's good. You, you should maybe talk to uh the folks at Andrew's in Dallas as well, because they're they're kind of following the same path that you guys are with this. And uh, I know they like to track a lot of stuff the more the better. Right. Come out with a yeah, position also, stand type paper.
2: Yeah, we also have um Nick who works with us, he's he's um, yeah. as part of Prism, which is a you know yes. PDF Research in Sports Medicine. We um, we're presenting the he will be presenting what We did a survey, some survey results of just practice patterns um, with the use of BFR amongst amongst providers at children's hospitals. Um, so he's going to be presenting that in February. So just to try to get a better understanding of of how the intervention is being used. Are we is everybody using it the same? Which is probably not the case. But mm-hmm. you know what. Can we can we make can we do things to make you know what is the best way to to implement this um, not only just with BFR but just in, in PT in general. So pretty is that at about the Prism that. Conference, Adam? Yeah, that'll be in Anaheim and um, be on Anaheim in the end Isn't of January.
3: Yeah, okay. he'll be at CSM as well. So if you're up in Boston, he'll uh, he'll have a yeah. presentation in there with the survey results. So make sure to look out for that. Nice, very
0: cool. Yeah, we'll... and he's
1: Andy there for sure. He's going to publish that.
2: You'll have that, okay? We <laughs> hope so. <laughs> I'll, I'll put right it out there right now. Nick
0: will be publishing Nick. his data that he's going, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now he has to, it's in the ethos, yeah. Yep, yeah. well, I, well, I like so- that. Um, the idea, of, Adam, you kind of alluded to earlier, just sort of figuring out when to sort of move on to more traditional kind of strength and conditioning things. I think there's a need for that, especially as we start using BFR more, like how do you figure out, Hey, this joint is okay to kind of tolerate this stuff. Um, Or are there good ways, for example, to maybe kind of like feather in strength and conditioning. I, I know one thing that I just started doing in our clinic was I'd, I'd mix in some sort of like body weight heavy kind of movement and then just kind of see how people were the following day. But then once, once I felt like their joint was okay, we'd almost go like a heavy Monday and then a BFR Wednesday or, or something Mm -hmm. like that. So that we were sort of not just going like, now we stop the BFR and we do the heavy, you know, like that always kind of felt a little bit too, too much. To me. Yeah, so, I've moved to um
2: using, you know, in the early phases when they're more limited by mobility, you know, kind of really using table based stuff or a shuttle when they can top when they've got good enough quad control. And then using again from a longer quad position or open chain, just using that as their BFRs that that's the last thing they'll do for the day. And then we do mm-hmm. all of our other stuff. Um, and then we may just keep that in there. But I, I agree we it's not yeah. necessarily A cold turkey, but we've sort of tried to once they've got good range and they can, they're walking normally, and we feel like we can start to add some, some, some load. Um, you know, I'm sort of moving that way faster, um, with that. And and just, you know, I think every intervention you learn and any as you progress through professionally, you, you get gung ho about it initially. And then you, when you realize when you're more proficient in it, you know when to not use it rather than to just carpet bomb everything. Um, so that's where we're trying to be. You know, I think it's the next step now is can we be more selective and, and, and direct with the, the patients that really need it?
1: And yeah, there's always a patient waiting on the cuff. So the faster you get them off it, the better. That's right. <laughs> That's not <laughs> our problem. Well, this is, this is fantastic, man. Thanks for coming on, you guys, and sharing that. Um, it is it is out. It's publication now. It is in the Orthopedic Journal of Sports Medicine. And um, you guys- We give again, the title. I don't think we actually you. gave the title, Johnny. We should yeah, probably give right. the title.
0: It is.
1: Early and late stage benefits of BFR training on knee strength in adolescence after ACLR.
0: Right. And there's like
1: 10 authors on it. Yeah well
0: journal something it's an orthopedic journal orthopedic, orthopedic journal, journal, journal sports, sports medicine. medicine ojsm We'll put okay. a link in our bio it's open well, access at least right now is it still okay yeah I don't, is it one of those temporary open access things do y'all know or will it
3: not no? it'll oh, be open stuff. access nice yep. love it
1: so okay. just just so uh, your paper i was reading through it the other day before i i went to go do something. And I had stapled it to another paper and I didn't realize it. And I flipped through like your abstract and then I flipped to the methods and I went to the methods of the other paper. And I was just like, what in the hell are these guys doing? I text Kyle I'm like, I don't understand what, you know, like they're using different devices and I don't they're like testing LOPs. And Kyle's like, really?
2: So anyway, yeah, that so, wasn't that wasn't us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So anyways, so don't Uh, staple
1: uh, multiple papers together and and expect to to read through it really well. So anyways, well, thanks, you guys. Fantastic stuff. Can't wait to talk soon. We're going to get Nick to publish his paper and see him present his results. And then uh, I love this collaboration you're doing with the other institutions. I think that that is something we really need. Cool.
2: Appreciate it. Thanks for having us. All right. Thanks, guys. Take care, fellas. Thanks, guys. Okay.
0: Thanks for listening to the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Owens Recovery Science is a single source for PTs, OTs, ATCs, DCs, MDs, and other medical professionals seeking certification in personalized blood flow restriction rehabilitation training. Find them online at owensrecoveryscience.com. One last thing before we get out of here. First, I want to say a sincere thank you for listening all the way through. But also wanted to remind you that this podcast should not be considered medical advice. It is strictly entertainment. It's a way for us to try to keep up with what is ongoing within the BFR world. If you require some sort of medical attention, medical advice, please seek that from a licensed individual within your state. Thanks, and we'll talk to you soon.